When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're alive. Let's get started. People consult a piece of wood, and their divining rod gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have played the whore, forsaking their god. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains, and make offerings upon the hills, under oak, poplar, and terrapins, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with whores and sacrifice with temple prostitutes. Thus, a people without understanding comes to ruin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Judah become guilty. Do not enter into Gilgal or go up to Beth Bethaven, and do not swear as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn, stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. When their drinking is ended, they indulge in sexual orgies. They love lewdness more than their glory. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their altars. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We continue with the, thank you, Paula. Um, We continue with the um, reading of Hosea, this northern prophet who is not only condemning the unfaithfulness to the covenant that his people are doing, but he's also embodying it in his own marriage to Gomer or Gomer. Uh, He is told to marry her and his own life is a laughingstock to the people that know him. And so he is acting in the place of God. He is a visible symbol of how God feels about God's people doing just about anything they can come up with uh, when it comes to worship, except for worshiping God in the way that God has called them to worship. This would have been pretty hard to do um, since there was a civil war and since there was um, real conflict and trouble sometimes going to Jerusalem to worship. Um, But people have always found ways to work around difficult political situations when it comes to worshiping God. And the people in that time had found ways to do that, that were still faithful to the covenant. We see in the story of Israel and God all through the Bible that there is always an ebb and flow in the relationship. There is always struggle. There is always disharmony, disunity. There is always um, most of the people not following the covenant. 
At least that's how the prophets depict it. But it doesn't mean that all of them were doing all these things. Uh, what it means is that the dominant cultural drive of that time was in pursuit of these other things. There is this relationship between wine and new wine and the worship of these idols. The wine and new wine take away the understanding and people consult pieces of wood and these divining rods that give them oracles. So we can see that um, this and the reference to the sexual orgies that are being indulged in in the area around Samaria by Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, um, sort of go together in this sort of wild partying atmosphere. It's, it reminds us of the stories we read in the Exodus when they come out and they say, let's set up a golden calf. Um, and it says the people sat down to eat and they rose up to play. And in this party that they had with lots of music and singing and dancing, there was also uh, a departure from the covenant relationships that God had called them to. And, you know, in, for modern Christians, this, um, these texts have often been used to squelch any kind of fun. Um, the Puritan movement in the Church of England that eventually um, flourished in the Americas um, and all the other smaller groups that came out of the Puritan movement um, really were against dancing of all kinds, even folk dances like the Maypole celebrations that were so common in England. Morris dancing was another kind of dancing that happened in all throughout England. And Queen Elizabeth I was a very um, avid Morris dancer herself. The Puritan project that then began to gather steam condemned these things, Morris dancing, Maypole dancing, um, and other folk dances. Um, because they were often associated with what was called debauchery, drinking to excess, and then the kind of relationships that can only happen uh, when people are drinking to excess. Um, some of them being coercive and ass assaultive and awful, and others just being um, outside the norms of um, covenant marriages and things like that. And so this Pur the Puritans latched onto these texts about dancing and drinking and all these other things as if that were the, the real problem of that time. And I think for Anglicans, we've always tried to um, take this, these texts seriously and say what the prophet is condemning is really wrong. Um, setting up a completely different religious system where people no longer worship the one true and living God but they set up an idol and say, this is the God that saved you from Egypt. Or they set up a wooden um, Asherah pole or some other kind of symbol of the deities that surrounded them, ultimately giving their allegiance to them, saying to Baal or Asherah or the other gods and goddesses surrounding them and saying, you know, if you can get me out of this mess, you can make me prosperous, I'll devote my life to you. It's always a transaction that that um, these false gods make with us. Um, but then you have these other elements of the sexual stuff and the alcohol, and we can see that um, human beings have always had this kind of propensity, this 
this drive towards feeling better about what's happening with us, um, wanting to escape reality and the reality of our lives, wanting to um, have a good time. And it's often in that pursuit of pleasure for its own sake that we do the most damage to each other. Um, Pleasure is a good thing. The devil never invented any pleasures. Um, That's all God. Um, So things like alcohol and, and sex and all these things that are condemned are ultimately God's provision, God's inventions, if you will, for the world. Um, some forms of alcohol we could debate on whether they're God's inventions or not. Um, if you've ever had Jägermeister or something like that, you know that that may be a debatable topic. But ultimately, um, the overwhelming testimony of scriptures that wine makes the heart glad. And uh, texts that say, you know, when you're happy, you should drink. And when you're sad, you shouldn't drink because you'll just get sadder. But you get a little happier when you're happy. Um, a realistic view of alcohol is expressed in the scriptures. But there's this other side of it. When alcohol is used to cloud our understanding, to take away our judgment, to give us that extra boost to do things that we would never do um, otherwise, that is when alcohol becomes its own God in our lives, its own deity in our lives, that we um, must um, figure out a way to have a relationship with or not have one at all. Uh, and it is the same, same way with sexual indulgence. God created sex. Um, it is a thing that does influence and drive so much of our human existence and life. Um, and yet, there, is, um, there are ways it can be a, a self-destructive thing. It can be a way to hurt other people or to, um, to not experience real human relationships. And that's what's happening in these, um, the prostitution that he talks about the temple prostitution where children are um, donated like to an orphanage, to these temples. They are raised to be prostitutes um, from their youth. So the kind of activity that Jose is talking about is extremely abusive. Um, it is not, um, not anything that we would say was encouraging human flourishing. And yet this is approved of behavior. This is acceptable for this, um, these, the worship of these false gods. Um, and ultimately, God is not so concerned about sex or drinking or parties or things like that. God is, God is concerned about these people's hearts. And you can see that in the text. He says, Israel is like a stubborn heifer. Now that's kind of a rude thing to say, God, or Hosea. Um, that we're a stubborn heifer. Maybe we don't want to sound that description to attach to us. Um, But, you know, a young calf or cow that um, doesn't really want to go to the right feed trough, doesn't want to be brought in when the lightning starts to strike, um, doesn't want to move to the field with the better grass. Um, We can be stubborn at times. But a good farmer, um, a good rancher, knows how to deal with stubborn heifers. Um, you don't deal with them by, sometimes there's a little bit of poking that goes along with cattle prods and things like that, but there's also love and encouragement and relationship that goes into raising stubborn cattle. Um, and then this next line is even more beautiful, I think. It says, can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? That the heartbeat of God through all of this condemnation 
is that God wants to feed his people like a shepherd feeds a lamb in a broad, green, beautiful pasture. That is God's vision for our lives, that we would have plenty, that we would have enough, that we would feel satisfied with God's love and the love of the community that God has called into being, the church, that that is enough for us. And the relationships, like um, the good relationships that we have with other people, um, in, in our, um, all of these needs that, are, that people are chasing after through the abuse of alcohol, through the, um, the temple prostitution, through the sexual orgies without any relationship, all of these things uh, can be met in that broad pasture. And you've got to believe that when life is hard. You've got to trust that God can meet your needs. God can meet your sexual needs. God can meet your needs for alcohol. God can meet your needs for, um, for all these things that we say we need. Um, our, our greatest needs are love, always. And we're always looking for love in all the wrong places. That's just the human condition. And the sheep in the pasture, they're looking for all kinds of things. The grass is always greener somewhere else. And yet God has put us or wants to put us in this broad green pasture. And that's the heartbeat of God. So in all this kind of turmoil and anger and rage that Hosea is shouting, and he's shouting to himself too because he's part of it just as much as they are. Um, And ultimately God is part of it too. God is the one who married these people who depart from the faithfulness of their covenant. Um, It is God's choice that he chose them. He chose us. Um, So whatever problems uh, God has with God's people are ultimately problems with God. Um, They're not problems with the other or some other separate group. God is saying, I want you to have enough grass to be happy. And that's what a a sheep needs, a lamb, he says. The heifer and the lamb, that is who God sees us as. And we see ourselves a lot of different ways. But ultimately, we, God really wants us to be well-fed. So whenever you have an impulse to do something self-destructive or destructive to somebody else, whether it's through the overuse of alcohol, whether it's through sexual exploitation or sexual um, sexual um, breaking of taboos and things that these people are doing in this story. Um, all of these things, we have to say, I trust you, God. I trust that I'm a lamb in a big pasture, that God will ultimately meet all these needs. And that is the, what Jose is ultimately calling them back to. Um, not to some Puritan killjoy, no dancing, no party. Um, and I think, you know, if we think about what we really want in life, um, when it comes to uh, alcohol or, or sex, those kind of great vices of our, our time and Hosea's time and everybody's time. Um, ultimately, the greatest joy is kind of that vision of somebody else's wedding. I think that's how I think of it anyway. You know, somebody else's wedding, not your wedding necessarily, because that's stressful and you got to kind of plan that and organize it. Somebody else's wedding, your good friend, someone you really love and care about, and you go to their wedding and you have some champagne, uh, if you're able to, and you, you dance with every, the DJ, and it's really fun. And there's relationship, and there's connection, and a lot of people there know each other. 
It's not a disembodied kind of blind experience. It's an experience of friends being together and celebrating someone else's love um, in that way. That is, to me, the vision of what the opposite of what Hosea's people and God's people are doing with these orgies, with these, with this, um, with their drinking and all these other things. All those things are a way of taking people further apart from each other. But the vision of God's kingdom is this wedding, and that is the vision that um, is set before us. Ultimately, um, at the end of days, at the last days, we will feast in the in the wedding feast of the Lamb. Um, there'll be great wedding cake there. There'll be all kinds of good things, and there'll be a DJ, and we'll have a lot of fun, and we'll drink the new wine in the kingdom that Jesus has made for us. It'll probably be champagne. Like, this is the vision of happiness that we've got to hold on to. We've got to hold on to when all that other stuff seems like to be the only way to go, the only thing we can do. Um, so keep that vision of, the, of your best friend's wedding um, in your mind, um, that you can, to, that God does have those things for you. Um, this is not the end. There is more awaiting you. Better days are ahead. This is the truth of God's love and God's kingdom that Hosea knew somewhere deep in his soul because God wanted to feed them in his broad pasture as a lamb of their own flock, as sinners of his own redeeming. Amen. At the Lamb's high feast we sing praise to our victorious King who hath washed us in the tide flowing from his pierced side. Praise we him whose love divine gives his sacred blood for wine, gives his body for a feast, Christ the victim, Christ the priest. Where the paschal blood is poured, Death's dark angel sheaths his sword. Israel's host triumphant go Through the wave that drowns the foe. Praise we Christ whose blood was shed, Paschal victim, Paschal bread, With sincerity and love, Eat we manna from above. Easter triumph, Easter joy, These alone do sin destroy. From sin's power do thou set free, Souls newborn, O Lord, in thee. Hymns of glory, songs of praise, Father, unto thee we raise. Risen Lord, all praise to thee. With the Spirit ever be. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Today is the feast day of a couple people, Richard Roll, Walter Hilton, and Marjorie Kemp. And they were all mystics. Nobody that describes himself as a mystic is a mystic, by the way. That's a designation we give people from a distance. But Richard, Walter, and Marjorie were three early and prominent figures associated with Christian mysticism in England. Richard Roll was born in 1290, 1290, and he was an English hermit about whose early life we know very little. At around the age of 18, he gave up his studies at Oxford for an ascetic life, out of which grew a ministry of prayer, writing, and spiritual direction. Roll lived his final years near the Cistercian convent near Hampole, a village in South Yorkshire. Among his chief writings are several scriptural commentaries, some theological writings, originally written in Latin and translated into English, and many poems. Though criticized by many for promoting a highly subjective form of religion, he was an ardent defender of the contemplative life that he practiced. <clears throat> Similarly, though we know very little of the early life of Walter Hilton, beyond his death or his birth in 1340, um, his birth in 1340, evidence suggests he studied at Cambridge and became a hermit for a little while, and then became an Augustinian canon um, in North in Nottinghamshire late in the 14th century. In his great work, The Scale of Perfection, he develops his understanding of the luminous darkness, which marks the transition between self-love and the love of God. Similarities between his work and the anonymous The Cloud of Unknowing have convinced some to attribute this work, The Cloud of Unknowing, to him, although we don't know that for sure. And then Marjorie Kemp was born around 1373. She was uh, illiterate and dictated to her priest um, the book of Marjorie Kemp, from which we attain most of our knowledge of her. She was a mystic who experienced intense, vi- intense visions, followed by a period of emotional disturbance, subsequent to which she went on pilgrimage to Canterbury, and she made, later made pilgrimages to the Holy Land and to Santiago de Compostela, and was encouraged in her efforts by Julian of Norwich, another mystic, She describes these travels as well as her mystical experiences and her deep compassion for sinners. Um, You know, throughout all of church history, there has existed several different streams of ways of being Christian. Um, There are lots of different ways to be Christian in this world, and there always has been. If you look at any period of church history, you'll find the more intellectual Christians, like the ones at Oxford and Cambridge that were contemporaries of these these people who often would look down on some of the more popular forms of Christianity or more contemplative forms or more inspirational forms. Um, And yet these were just as important for Christianity in their day um, as all the other kinds. There is a, um, there is a charitable dimension to Christianity where people don't, don't talk a lot, but they just kind of do a lot of good things for people. There's the scholarly approach, which you'll find in universities and seminaries and places like that. And then there's this other approach, which is a mystical contemplative approach where people really do 
um, get themselves into a state where they're open to receive um, God's words and um, God the experiences of of uh, their faith, which often are strange to read about or see up close, but with reflection, we can also get to those places too. Um, these mystics really do show us that um, this kind of experience with God, where God does speak to us in our hearts, is something that um, every Christian can have, maybe to different degrees, and we can't force it or make it happen. Um, one of the things I love about being with Joan of Arc in this church is that Joan of Arc had visions. She was a mystic. And I think a lot of people do today, and as, these, as they have always had. It's just in our day, I think people are very hesitant to share some of those things because um, people will think you're a religious kook if you have had God speak to you or heard visions or, or seen visions or heard voices um, speaking God's word to you. So we need discernment in these areas, of course, but um, we also need to be open to how God speaks to people. And these three examples are um, good examples of how, how th- that happens in our world today. So I invite you to um, consider the experiences with God you've had in your life. They don't have to be like big flashing lights or didn't knock you off your horse or anything like that, um, although they could have done that. But ultimately, moments where you knew you were loved by God, you were overwhelmed by God's love, where the things that you were facing and the trials you, that beset you were, were suddenly taken care of by God in a way that you knew in your soul was true. Um, this was the quest of the mystics. They were very troubled people many times who had a lot of what we would call uh, mental illness maybe today or some other antisocial behavior and things like that. But they also were open to God speaking. And, um, and that's something we want to encourage in people's lives today. We don't want to talk so much about mystical experiences where younger people especially feel like they have to have them to be a real Christian. You don't. You don't have to have any experiences to be a Christian um, at all, um, you know, or anything you recognize as experience. But I think over time, as, you, as we all reflect on our lives, um, we'll find those places where we kind of knew that we were loved by God. And for me, looking back, I know I had those experiences as a teenager and a young person. And now I, I wouldn't have called them that then, mystical experiences, but I do now because that was God speaking to me and telling me that I was going to be okay, that I was going to be loved and okay in God's hands. And, um, and those actually are really profound and life-changing, um, even though they are not always, um, they don't always lend themselves to some big grandiose story. Um, I think a lot of times God speaks. Um, we just, um, our listening is the gift and, and it is enough. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the lives and work of Richard, Walter, and Marjorie, hermits and mystics who, passing through the cloud of unknowing, beheld your glory. Help us, after their examples, to see you more clearly and love you more dearly. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. One of the things I've read from mystics over the years um, not necessarily these in particular, but others, is that um, they are often given a love for humanity that goes beyond uh, what we normally may possess on our own. Um, Humans are hard to love sometimes, especially in big groups or in vast numbers or people that are very different from us. But the mystics always had this vision that every face 
was the face of God. Every face glowed with the radiance of God's light um, in a way that truly was a mystical experience. So to me, that's one thing I've always tried to quest for, to be able to see the people I encounter every day as being God, as being um, full of God's light, made in God's image. They're reflecting God's image. And I can see that and see them as holy beings. Um, And I pray for that mystical experience often. And sometimes I even get it. Um, And sometimes I just have to trust God that that's true, Um, as I can't always see it. And um, I pray that they see it in me as well.